0: All right, well, welcome back to our study in systematic theology. We are on uh, session number 34 and, of 60, and we are continuing in a kind of a set uh, of sessions on the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are now going to be looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we will later, just to clarify, we will later be looking at baptism specifically, and um, but tonight's session isn't about baptism in general, rather it's about how, uh, what role does the Holy Spirit play in, in baptism and uh, some of the differences and disagreements uh, over that with uh, basically some of our uh, Pentecostal uh, folk. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Next time we will look at the gifts of the Spirit Uh, and then, uh, after that, the fruit of the spirit and that will wrap up our sessions uh, specifically on Holy Spirit. Um, so as usual, we're going to, I'm going to read an article for you that kind of introduces this topic to us and, uh, gets our feet wet on what we're going to be looking at here in the video. And then after the video, we'll go through our sheet here with our overview and our questions, have some discussion, and then we'll take a quick look at just a few, um, Parts of our our confession that relate to this matter, Um, it's not going to be a full chapter or anything, just a few references, but thought it would be helpful to look at that. All right, so let's uh, let's look at our article here. Recently, a history of Pentecostalism (coughs) in the 20th century titled, The Century of the Holy Spirit was published. The title reflects the fact that a renewed discussion of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian world occurred in the last century. More books about the Holy Spirit have been written since the mid-20th century than were written in all the years of church history before then combined. Much of this is due to the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements, with their emphasis on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and quote-unquote sign gifts such as tongues. These traditions tend to distinguish between Spirit-filled Christians and non-Spirit-filled Christians. Anyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation is a non-spirit-filled Christian, while spirit-filled Christians have experienced a second work of grace known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, an infilling of God's Spirit with power and gifts for ministry. Normally, Pentecostals believe speaking in tongues proves that one has received the Holy Spirit. Theologians in this tradition justify their view by appealing to the four instances recorded in the Acts of the Apostles when people received the Holy Spirit in an experience distinct from conversion. Jewish believers, Samaritan believers, God-fearers, that is Gentiles who believed in Yahweh without being circumcised, and believers who were once pagan Gentiles. And there are several references. Uh, if you're interested, I can provide those to you after class. However, the New Testament nowhere else describes a second work of grace, making these narratives at best an incomplete foundation on which to build a theology of the Spirit. Acts records the transition in redemptive history when God, for our sake, had to make it clear that his gifts were no longer limited to Jews. In fact, Acts begins by telling us that the apostles would witness to Christ first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Notably, the spirit (coughs) baptisms Luke records in Acts conform to these geographic spread of the gospel, Jews in Jerusalem, God-fearers in Judea, Samaritans in Samaria, and Gentiles who represent the ends of the earth. These (coughs) baptisms confirm that none who are welcome into God's kingdom through faith in Christ alone are second-class citizens. Ultimately, traditional Pentecostal theology has an untenable view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, the Spirit has baptized all believers into one body. There are no Holy Spirit have-nots in the kingdom of God. So when we separate the baptism of the Holy Spirit from conversion, we end up with second class citizens in the kingdom of God. But as the Lord has poured out His Spirit on all His people, this is impossible. Christians may be at different points in their sanctification and level of Christian maturity, but no Christian lacks the Holy Spirit in his life. Let us be encouraged by this, for it means that we will certainly grow into conformity to Christ. Alright, so that was our our introduction. Let's pause and watch our video. Alright, so we have now finished our video. Let's uh, let's go through our overview of what we've learned and get into our uh, discussion questions. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, an introduction. What does it mean when asked, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Here we discuss the baptism of the Holy Spirit as well as the phenomenon of speaking in tongues and the false distinction between conversion and baptism in the Spirit. Overview. The charismatic movement has made a remarkable impact on the church. What are the roots of this movement? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit originally were linked to a perfectionist view of sanctification. The doctrine and history of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is rooted in Wesleyan perfectionism. It was considered an experience that marked your perfection. The sign that accompanied it was speaking in tongues. This doctrine began finding its way into different denominations. <clears throat> but how do we integrate this doctrine with historic Christianity? Neopentecostalism was the result. The baptism was seen in this movement as the sign of a spiritual gifting of God, but Neopentecostals disagree over the sign of tongues. They do agree that there is a time gap between conversion and and the reception of the baptism so the body of christ is then split between the haves and the have-nots the basis for this view is the acts narrative the biblical record in acts must therefore be the basis of our acceptance or rejection of this doctrine what do the events of pentecost in acts 2 mean during pentecost there were all sorts of visible and audible signs When Peter interprets these events, he quotes a passage from Joel. The gifts of the Spirit will no longer be limited to prophets, priests, kings, and a few others. This interpretation makes it difficult to argue that this baptism is only for some believers. Joel makes it clear that the baptism or gifting of the believers was not to be just to a few, but to be for all people everywhere. The Jewish believers at Pentecost all received this new gifting, not just some. There are yet three other mini-Pentecosts in Acts. Non-Jews received this gifting in these situations that are found in Acts 8, 10, and 19. These outpourings have suggested a permanent separation between conversion and gifting. As the gospel was preached to these various groups, the question naturally arose as to whether these people were, quote unquote, real Christians. Luke says yes, by tracing the expansion of the gospel through its victories in those from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And regarding these Pentecostal events, Paul says, were we not all baptized by one spirit? All Christians are given these gifts, not just a few. So our questions and answers, we do these to kind of uh, hit home what we've learned here. Uh, to what teaching was the Pentecostal view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit originally linked? The perfectionism. The sign of this arrival and perfection, or second blessing, so-called, was speaking in tongues. Did the apostles at Pentecost declare that the gifts of the Holy Spirit would fall on certain anointed members of the church? No. During the Old Testament, certain anointed men would receive the Holy Spirit. Now all believers everywhere receive the Holy Spirit. There is no time gap between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and which salvation reality. Regeneration. A new believer has the Holy Spirit immediately at conversion. What do the many pentecosts throughout the book of Acts demonstrate? Gospel Expansion. As the gospel moved out from Jerusalem, Jew and Gentile alike were given the Holy Spirit. As the gospel was received by the Gentiles, what was the primary issue? Whether the Gentiles had full membership rights. Gentiles were considered to be outside the camp. As the gospel was preached to these groups, the primary issue was whether they had full membership rights in the body of Christ. What was Moses' desire for the people of Israel? that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Joshua was worried that the elders should not be prophesying, but Moses wished that God would give every member of the community his Spirit for ministry. So let's look at our discussion questions. So how did the Wesleyan movement understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Right? An experience that came later, right? After conversion and was not guaranteed. How do charismatics understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit? So I guess the difference there, I would say, was that charismatics don't nef- necessarily espouse to perfectionism, but they still espouse the idea that there's this time gap, right, between your justification and your gifting or indwelling of the Holy Spirit.
1: I'm trying to think about Pentecostals, if there's any, but what I remember of most of them to a T. They're primarily Arminian in Mm. belief. So when you're an Arminian, you're the one choosing God. This idea of God sovereignly working within your heart, changing you, Mm. uh, the fact that you're totally depraved, they reject all this. And and that fits in with, Wesley, Wesley was certainly Arminian, and this I... of you have to work towards perfectionism or work towards getting the Holy Spirit to take over the throne of your life. If you want to read the Holy Spirit book by Campus Crusade, you know. And so I see that when I look at them, this is nothing more than a defect in an underlying belief of how does God work. And since they're on works basis, in essence they are trying to earn their salvation and that's why you see the outpouring of this and i think because of that they never because they do not believe in god's sovereign grace and working they have no comfort they don't really know if they're saved hmm. how can they when you put when you're saying oh, i've got to do something For that, where do they find comfort? So, uh,
0: which is the same issue with Roman Catholicism, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I
1: mean,
0: um, none of them can be guaranteed of their, you know, their assurance of salvation.
1: That's right. You know, and then they got the idea of purgatory, right? Your mom, or (laughs) I mean, you can pray for your mama, and you know, give the church some something uh yeah. coinage and then it mama indulges. suddenly gets out of purgatory and she's going to be okay right or dad or your wife or whoever
0: yeah what's the I forget how it goes something about the, every time I coin in the copper clings uh, a soul spring you know from purgatory springs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from purgatory <it's> yeah. <laughs> spring it's
1: pretty, I've never heard that but
0: so, uh, how does Peter's use of Joel in Acts shed light on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What did Peter uh, quote from Joel? Do you remember?
1: That is not for a few, but it's to be for all
0: people every year. Yeah, it was the, the prophecy of Joel, right? That, that God would pour out his Spirit to, to all of God's people. So I think that's definitely significant in this in this argument or debate of can you have a true believer who does not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, at least in the New Testament church, right? Right. And and so therefore we talk about I priesthood of believers and we talk about us all being equipped for the ministry, right? Because if it's at least in some form or fashion, our responsibility of all God's people, all believers, uh, for that those works is no longer just well the priest handle that, you know, I mean, that's not your job. Um, again, because if we're a believer, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are equipped by the Holy Spirit for the work of ministry. So. All right. What is the significance of the three mini Pentecosts in Acts?
1: I thought that was interesting. I never really is four people. Excuse me, four, not five. <laughs> um, the four groups. groups. He, yeah. The people groups. I never thought of it that way, and how each one of those showed a different people group. Yeah. Um, you know.
0: Yeah, that, that is interesting, and and yet in each circumstance it worked the same way, right? Where <laughs> the right. Holy Spirit was poured out to all those who who believed, right. regardless of what people group they were from.
1: Right. Yeah, he brought up there, and I, I use this for people that can't understand God's sovereignty. I ask them, okay, in the Old Testament, what people or people groups did God's grace fall upon, fall upon? And, you know, it takes a while. I said, well, was it everybody? Was it just Israel? And most people say just Israel. So I said, so as I understand it, God didn't love the rest of the world, right? The only way you could come have any salvation or righteousness, Righteousness for God was to be a confessing Jew. And the Gentiles, the Greeks, and they had no chance of salvation. I mean, they were, you know, God didn't bring them in there. So, you know, it, it and saying, so, you know, that's kind of the same way with sovereignty. God chooses us, He mm-hmm. chose a singular nation. Now he chooses individuals.
0: Right. That's the quote from Hosea, right? I will call them my people whom I choose to call my people. Right. So that's God's sovereignty in a nutshell. Okay, uh, let's look at just a couple of quick uh, passages from our confession. If you have it, you're welcome to pull it up or you can just listen. Um, these will be brief. So, first, I'm going to look at uh, chapter 10. And we're only going to look at uh, paragraph two here and see how this relates to our discussion. So, chapter 10 is of effectual calling. Paragraph two The effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co working with his special grace. The creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He is thereby enabled to answer this call, and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it, and that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. So this is very related to what we were just talking about there. Um, But it is the work of of the Holy Spirit that uh, quickens and renews. So if you... You know, that, that's interesting how they try to separate regeneration from baptism of the Holy Spirit, yet we confess it is only the work of the Holy Spirit that quickens and renews. Um, all right, so let's also look at chapter 13. This one is, sorry, i just stuck, of sanctification, and we'll also look at paragraph 2 here. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth in continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So uh, what does what does that say about the idea of perfectionism in this life? Certainly... uh certainly espouses that we do not agree in the idea of a perfectionism here in this life. All right, let's also look at chapter 16. And this will be paragraph 3. And chapter 16 is, sorry, of good works. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is necessary and actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty, unless upon a special motion of the Spirit... But they ought to be diligent in the stirring up of the grace of God that is in them. So here we can see apart from the Holy Spirit, we are really uh, not capable of doing good works, at least not good as we would define it in, in the sense of God. So if only true believer, I mean if true believers are split between those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and those who do not. What does it say about true Christians who do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and their ability to do good works? They have none. (laughs) So that would indicate not only do you have have and have nots, you have true Christians that are incapable of doing any good works. So we can definitely see from our confession that we refute this whole idea of uh, the have and have nots, the true believers that... Have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and those that don't. All true believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, I hope it was a good session. Any further comments, thoughts, questions on the subject?
1: And you didn't get the Holy Spirit till you put them on the throne of your life. They had this chair kind of, I mean, you know, I never liked that book, even though I was in Crusade. The Holy Spirit book was one of their worst ones, you know, theologically.
0: Yeah, I, I was never introduced to it, the idea of perfectionism until I visited once a, a Nazarene church. I'd never heard of it before. Um, and it shocked me. I was like, what? <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, in fact, I had a, a friend, somewhat of a mentor um, at my old church, and he said he roomed with a um, Nazarene, in, in, I guess in college, and uh, that believed he had re- reached the state of perfectionism. And He said it was very difficult to live with a guy who thinks he's perfect because everything <laughs> that goes wrong must be my fault because he's perfect. It can't be his fault. <laughs>
1: well, down in southwest Virginia, there was a guy that came there who believed that exact thing, that he had become sinless. Yeah. He'd reached this state where he no longer sinned. And the elders had to eject him from the church, you know, after a while because he kept teaching that. I mean, that was his favorite subject and not that they ever let him teach, but that was, if he ever opened his mouth or when he opened his mouth, that was the one topic, you know. (laughs) So they they asked them to stop associating, you know, because of that heresy. Yeah, that's a big heresy. Yeah, it is. So it was.
0: Um, Don, will you close us in prayer? Sure.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have elected us into your kingdom, that you've brought, you've enlightened our minds and our souls, you've forgiven us of our sins in that through the holy spirit you work in our life every day uh, bring our hearts to be more committed to you to lay aside those things that so easily entangle us and stop us for um, pursuing uh, a good race help us to love you and to work for you uh, work under you and your kingdom and give us grace and mercy as we live each day to the glory of your name and honor in Jesus name amen
0: amen thank you guys